Hello, welcome to Notes from the Underdark, the podcast chronicling the stories of D&D campaigns that I'm in. I'm your narrator, Jonathan Lips. All the stories and much more information about the campaign, the world, and the characters are published online at underdark.quest. Check it out. And now, on to the episode. This is Champions of the Kaidemones, Episode 7, Champions Bond. Previously, we left our champions in a tense moment, debating what to do with the surprise acquisition of one of the magical Tehokibi stones that was now sitting on the floor in our midst, in Fen's quarters. Fen began by reiterating the purpose and scope of what we were now calling the Blood Pact, because of the threat of bloodshed attached to breaking it. First, we were faced with some ambiguity in regards to our current leader, Torella, the head of the Academy. While Rianne and Orwin trusted her implicitly, and would have been happy to take the stone directly to her, Fen had an instinctual hesitation about her motives, and Evender had claimed direct knowledge of Torello's motives to obtain a Tehokivi for herself and secretly. Second, it was clear that various powerful factions in Nawim were all seeking the stone for unknown ends. It appears that the stone had already been in the hands of the Chimash cult, and that we had stolen it from them. The Black Corniques and the Peristeri Wing were also reportedly looking for it. We certainly didn't want any of these groups to be in possession of this object of power. Otherwise, the prospects of the Kaidemones in Nawam and beyond would be even darker than they already were. Third, although none of us had asked to be the protectors of the stone, Fen argued that it had become our responsibility the moment we decided to take it. We could no longer simply wash our hands of it and hope for a good outcome with the stone in someone else's possession. At this point, several of the party protested that we were no more likely to be good stewards of the stone than anyone else, not even Fen. Fen did not deny this, but said again that this fact is why our oath of protection needed to include the promise not to use the stone, so as to protect it from ourselves just as much as any outsiders. And so the clauses that he proposed the party swear to were the following. That, outside of unanimous agreement, we would not tell anyone else of the existence of the stone or our possession of it, that we would not allow it to come into anyone else's possession, and that we would not attempt to use it ourselves. The penalty of breaking the oath, in addition to whatever punishment the gods might inflict, would be the destruction of the oathbreaker by the rest of the party. Rianne then added her voice in support of the oath, saying that, Even though she trusted Torella, 
it would not hurt to pledge to keep the stone safe until we were all satisfied that we found a better steward than ourselves. Evander and Orwin still demurred, not accepting that the stone was our responsibility, and not wanting to be tied to it. And so we proposed to adjust the oath in such a way that if one of us wanted to take leave of the responsibility of guarding the stone, we would be allowed to do so, under two conditions. The first condition was that the lever would still be bound by the oath of secrecy. The second was that the lever would forsake all interest and responsibility for the stone, and so would have no share in deciding its fate. The consequences of breaking secrecy would be the same as for the others. Death. Evander considered this carefully, saying cryptically that he wished he could take that option, but eventually he sighed and said he would swear the oath. Orwin, for his part, decided that the only honorable choice he could make given his convictions was to give up his part in the guardianship of the stone and swear the lesser oath, and leave the party. And so he did swear a solemn oath to his god, stood up, and left the room, and our fellowship, for good. Of course, he did this in a way that we had come to see as typical of Orwin, making swishing motions with his fingers as though winning a sword fight, and singing a song as he left. Alas, dear listeners, it seems we may never ultimately know what Orwin's whole deal was. The three of the party left in the room, then each took turns swearing their own oaths to protect the stone on pain of death. And then, the short-term fate of the Tehokivi decided, we took a much-deserved rest. Not wanting to leave the stone unattended, the party used Fen's room as a base of operations but tried to go about our academy business as usual, so as not to arouse suspicion. We knew that we should go and report something to Lady Torella, but had not yet come to terms with how we wanted to approach that conversation strategically, and so we discussed the point as we took care of our other chores. Rianne went to her friend Lavinia, who had helped her prepare for Lord Eglon's gala, and dyed her hair purple, in an attempt to keep from being recognized so easily by Eglon's goons, who were no doubt on the lookout for her. Evander retrieved a message at the gate, delivered by a boy apparently from the middle city. Fenn stayed in his quarters while the others ran their errands and examined one of his old tomes, the Tuvabo, a book of demerged cosmogony, he was curious to read the old creation stories again, to see if knowledge of the existence of the Tehokivi made any difference to his understanding of them. Fenn's research bore fruit indeed, as reinterpreting aspects of the story as referring to Tehokivi caused several pieces to come together in a new way. First, the demerged deities were perhaps not originally bound to Cosmohaute, but had come from another plane of existence entirely, and something similar was presumably true of the Stygian pantheon as well. 
the Tejo Kivi were related in some way to this interplanality, each one representing a different plane and bearing a different color. As Fen digested this and visually examined the stone in front of him, he came to the realization that if this was all true, then the stone in our possession must be the gray Tejo Kivi. Unfortunately, the creation myths were not specific enough to say anything more about the stones, cryptic as they were and speaking in such vagaries that of course Finn had previously not suspected any connection with the Tejo Kivi at all. When the group reconvened, and after Fenn had shared his learnings, attention turned to the topic of Torella. What were we to do? How could we draw out some kind of statement from her that would give us an indication of her motivations? Or catch her in a lie of some kind that would prove Evender's claims about her secret plans? Whatever we decided, we knew we needed to exercise the utmost care not to be caught in any deception ourselves. Torella was supremely sharp of wit and insight, and so we had to make sure to tell only the truth, however partial. We came up with what we felt like was our best plan and went to Torella's office to put it into motion. Given that we had set a solid precedent of bypassing the long queue of supplicants at Torello's door, we had no choice but to brush past them yet again and endure their angry glares as we entered Torello's office after a brief knock. She looked up with tired eyes and declared that, yes, it was us, and we should really stop doing that. Fenn sought to make up for our customary lack of custom by telling her that we had come with urgent news. In our search for lost Leolin, we had uncovered intelligence that a Tejo Kivi stone, which we had previously believed to be mythical, was in fact possibly real, and that we had good reason to believe one of them was in Nawam even as we spoke. Torella didn't blink, but simply waved a hand in the air, saying that of course the Tejo Kivi were real and that, in fact, she had had two of them in her possession in the last year. This admission shocked the party, and luckily there was no need to dissemble. Torella continued, saying that the stone rumored to be in the city was most likely the Hazazel stone, and that she already had plans in motion to find it. She then reiterated that she needed us to find Leolin, and that the Tejo Kivi was not our responsibility. Fenn tried to find a way to push a little deeper into Torella's motivations, asking why Leolin was still important given the presence of these mythically powerful stones. Surely they were a much higher priority? With these all-powerful stones, could we not use them to help fix the plight of the Kaidemones and Naum? Torella laughed. The problems with Nawam, she explained, were the people who lived here and their politics. The stones were intended to deal with much bigger problems. Threats to the entirety of the human species, like the fact that the Ashoni could easily eliminate humanity entirely if they put their mind to it. Or the fact that dangers lurked even beyond our plane. Torella reiterated that it was Lady Almara who was dealing with these larger problems, 
and that Torella's role regarding the stones was merely to try to find them, to send them to Lady Almara for these purposes. As for us, she reaffirmed Leolin's importance to our cause, and not just as a motivating factor for Arcus. Leolin was important in his own right, she explained, as a stone sigil signer who could offer some kind of protection for the future school as Arcus oversaw the building of it. In one last attempt, Fenn suggested that Lady Torella, in her wisdom, could still use one of the stones to help in the process of resettling the Kaidemenes. Torella laughed again, declaring that her power was in books and administration, not magic and the mystic arts. The Tehokivi would, moreover, immediately eviscerate anyone who touched it, and she had no desire to end up like so many of Lady Almara's aides in experimentation with the stones. Inwardly deflated by the clarity and reasonableness of Torella's responses, the party turned to leave. But Torella was not finished. She told us that she would need to recall Orwin, along with all trained Kaidemenes physicians, to the Medica, to deal with the increasing number of injuries in the city. In order not to leave us short-handed, she had assigned us a new party member, someone who had formerly been assigned to the Ramel's warden. Named Owen, he had at some point made the journey from the south, again the direction that we were meant to head to begin the founding of a new academy. At this, Rianne's ears pricked up, for she herself had served on the Ramel's warden vessel and overlapped with Owen. And so Fen and Rianne exited the office, while Evander stayed behind to execute the second portion of our plan. Outside, Rianne and Fend met Owen, who had been waiting in line. Owen and Rianne had a happy reunion. Owen clearly being of the more garrulous persuasion and growing loud in his statements about readjusting to life on land and so on. Rianne introduced Owen and Fen. Fen, realizing the difficulty that Torella had just landed us all in by saddling us with a teammate who was not part of our secret oath, had trouble finding any goodwill for idle chatter and barely mustered the appropriate courtesies for the introduction. When Evander left Torella, we went back to Fen's quarters, but first told Ewen that we had some business to take care of and that we would all meet in the refectory in one hour. Once alone, we asked Evander for a report of how the conversation had gone with Torella. The idea was for Evander to share something with Torella beyond what we had shared as a party, so as to look on the surface as though he was still acting out Torella's secret orders, and see if it would draw anything new out of Torella. Unfortunately, Evander said there was nothing new, and that Torella's orders for him were still the same. Find the stone and give it to her secretly. But Evander said there was some news from a different source. He had received a message from Theril Kell, the seedy shop owner in the middle city who had sent Leolin and his friends to the Black Corniques, 
and sold us information about the Tehokivi. The message conveyed that Theril had important information about the lordlings we had been asking about, which would be valueless very soon, and that we had better come prepared to pay handsomely for it. Resolving not to pay for information with our personal belongings this time around, we decided to ask for some coin from Torella to assist in our mission. But before reconvening with Ewen and going on our way, we had to decide what to do with the stone. It was too large to conceal and too dangerous besides. The best we could do was to hide it under the floorboards in Fen's quarters, under the bed, in a spot where it would hopefully remain safe. After saying our prayers for its safety, we found Eowyn and went to Torella, who sent us off to Lavina for the money we required. With that, we were on our way back out of the academy. When we met the guards at the gate between the inner and middle cities, we were prepared to use one of our usual ploys for convincing them to let us through. Owen, however, boldly interrupted our explanations and took to shouting jocularly to the guards himself. In the end, he did persuade them to let us pass, though not without earning the ire of Fen and Evander for shoving into the established party dynamics in such a way, which Evander made plain to him as soon as we were out of earshot of the guards. But we did make it to the shop of Mr. Kell, who greeted us sternly, declaring that he had to do a lot of work to figure out what kind of information it was we were in the market for. The party's suspicions, already high, were not assuaged by this comment. Mr. Kell had ears, it seemed, in many places. We then got down to haggling over the price of the information which he claimed was so valuable. After a few false starts, we settled on a two-part payment. Forty gold coins once we had heard the information and decided it was actionable, and then forty more once we found Leolin. So agreed, he proceeded to tell us what he knew. Theril Kell's news was dire indeed. Leolin and the other lordlings had been stolen away from the Corniques gang by the Peristeri wing, who were planning to execute the lordlings publicly in the lower city, as a symbolic first official salvo against the aristocracy. The wing had partnered with the Chimash cult in this, and Leolin was being held in the palace of the Hetairai in the inner city, the very palace where we had stolen the Tehokivi on the night of Lord Eglon's party. In a mere four hours, Mr. Kell said, the lordlings would be secretly transported to the lower city for their execution, at a place he described to us and which Evander indicated he knew. With that, we gave Theril his forty gold pieces and left to devise an urgent plan. There was not much time, and we had to get it right. We suggested to Evander that he use his connections with the Corniques to create some kind of disturbance that would cause enough distraction for us to spirit away the lordlings in the crowds watching the event. 
Evander agreed, saying only that he needed to do so in a way that would not ruin his reputation with the Corniks, because it needed to stay intact for other reasons. Given that the Corniks and Peristeri Wing were already de facto at war, we thought there must be some way for this to all work out. But we would need to work out the details on the way, because time was of the essence. And so, we headed once again in the direction of Kendler Alley, this time intentionally seeking out the deadly Corniks gang. And that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening to Notes from the Underdark, and stay tuned for future editions of the story. You can get in touch with me at Underdark Notes. That's Underdark underscore Notes on Twitter. If you're enjoying the show, please rate and review it in your podcast app, and tell your friends to visit Underdark.Quest. Underdark.Quest